This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is the Science Podcast for January 27th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, wolves have been shown to turn to otters as their main meal when they no longer have deer to eat. I talk with freelance science writer Jack Tamasia and researcher Gretchen Rothler about this unexpected behavior. Next up, how rocks turning to soil over geological time takes carbon out of the air. Susan Brantley joins me to discuss how this carbon capture depends on the temperature and can be affected by climate change. Now we have freelance science writer Jack Tamasia. He wrote a story this week on wolves running out of deer to eat and turning to an otter-based diet instead. Hi, Jack. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm excited to talk about this. We actually have talked about wolves on islands a few times on the podcast. I think it's kind of a nice natural experiment that uh, conservationists and researchers pay attention to. We talk about Isle Royale sometimes, and today we're talking about Pleasant Island. Is that right? Where, you know, where is this on the face of the earth? Okay. The uh, new uh, study takes place on Pleasant Island. It's a small island along the southeastern coastline of Alaska, just south of Glacier Bay National Park. We actually talked with one of the researchers who's been working out there at Pleasant Island, Gretchen Roffler. Sounds like a pretty amazing place. It's a small island. It's about 50 square kilometers, and it is covered with temperate rainforests, so spruce trees and hemlock, and then there's a lot of uh, these kind of wet, boggy meadows called muskegs. And just even a couple hundred years ago, this area was covered with ice, and the ice has recently receded. Um, so the landscape is going through a lot of major geographic changes. So, Jack, you mentioned in the story that the wolves swam across from the mainland. Is it a big group that made that trip? And, and how long have they been there? The um, wolves first swam ashore onto the island in 2013 and um, established a uh, permanent pack. And now there's, I think, around 13 wolves on the entire island. So wolves are thought to primarily eat ungulates. These are deer and other things with hooves and antlers. There's no deer on this place. And it's actually not a typical living space for wolves. So 
it's not clear why they decided to stay. It's a fascinating situation, but most most wolf home ranges in southeast Alaska are much, much bigger. So on average, 400 square kilometers, whereas the wolves on Pleasant Island exclusively live on a 50 square kilometer piece of real estate. So under other circumstances, I would expect that wolves would just leave this island. So that's one of the mysteries based on other studies that have happened in the past, including experimental introductions of wolves to other islands in southeast Alaska, the wolves didn't make it that long. You know, they eventually ran out of food and died off and began eating each other before disappearing. It sounds like there's a concern about what this changing diet means for a wolf population, like if there's enough food to sustain the group or if they're just going to die off. So the researchers try to figure this out, you know, what the wolves are eating once there is no more deer on the island. They did this by collecting wolf scat or feces and then looking for DNA of their prey within the scat. This helped them identify nearly 40 different species, uh, including toads, halibut, snowy owls, and even sperm whales that had washed ashore onto the beaches of Pleasant Island. So I was super surprised that they found, you know, evidence for them eating snowy owls and sperm whales, kind of an exotic diet for a wolf. But it turns out otters were the main thing. But how does a wolf catch an otter? These are seagoing predators, right? They spend most of the time out there in the water. Are the wolves just waiting for them to come out of the water for a little break? When they're on the uh, beach, they uh become uh, easy pickings for a hungry wolf who dispatches them with a crushing bite to the back of the skull, which is a pretty gnarly way to go out. Over the course of three month-long kill site investigation periods, we found 26 sea otter carcasses that were freshly killed by wolves. And we've also found 11 sea otter carcasses that it was too old for us to really know for sure that they had been definitively killed by wolves. So we didn't find fresh blood or bite marks. So we just considered these to be scavenging sites. You know, that's 37 sea otters over the course of 90 days. So I think a lot of people know that wolf populations are often managed these days because they have been through this, you know, they've been hunted, they've been endangered, they've been supported by conservationists because they're a keystone species, they're important to maintaining ecosystems up and down the food web. Turns out otters are also a keystone species in their own way and have undergone similar ups and downs. They were hunted, they were endangered, and now they're back. So, you know, what do they do? What role do they play in their ecosystem? Why are they so important? Sea otters play a very similar ecological role to wolves. They control the populations of potentially destructive invertebrates, such as a sea urchins, which helps ecosystems like kelp forests thrive. However, otters were nearly driven to extinction due to human hunting for their uh, really like thick and dense coats of fur. But they were saved by endangered species protections and a reintroduction efforts and began recolonizing Southeast Alaska in the 1980s. 
and they eventually reached the area around the island in the early 2000s, which is about a decade before the first wolves started to swim ashore. Because we're right next to Glacier Bay National Park, which is a protected area, the G- U.S. Geological Survey and the Park Service have spent many years monitoring sea otters, and currently the population is around 8,000, and the population's been expanding at a really great rate, about 20% per year. So there doesn't seem to be any shortage of sea otters at this point in time. The effects that the wolves are having on the sea otters is probably pretty minimal. You know, we estimate that this wolf pack on Pleasant Island, on average, consumes about 90 sea otters per year. And that's just based on the biomass of a wolf and the biomass of a sea otter and, you know, basic energetic models. So 90 sea otters per year isn't going to have a huge impact on the population. It seems like the wolves on Pleasant Island are kind of a unique case. We've talked about it being a very small area and, you know, that normally wolves are expected to eat ungulates, deer, things like that. But is this really something new for wolves, them eating otters, this interaction, or was it likely happening before? So the researchers believe that wolves have hunted sea otters for thousands of years uh, before they were temporarily taken off of the menu due to human hunting. But thanks to otter reintroduction in this part of Alaska, this seafood staple is available again for hungry wolves throughout the region. Thank you so much, Jack. Thanks again for taking the time to talk to me, Sarah. Sure. Jack Tamasia is a freelance science writer covering the nexus of natural history and environmental science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Susan Brantley. She's the Evan Pugh University professor in the Earth and Science Systems Institute and the Department of Geosciences at Penn State University. We're going to talk about how the weathering of rocks takes carbon out of the air and how this global process is linked with temperature and climate change. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. When we look at the Earth as a whole over geological timescales, there's this interesting reciprocal relationship between chemical weathering, taking carbon from the air, and volcanoes putting carbon back out there. This is a very slow and long-lasting process, and it's also temperature-dependent, with warmth speeding up the weathering and grabbing more carbon out of the air, and the opposite also happening, making this kind of a bit like a global thermostat. We have uh, Susan Brantley here. She and her colleagues wrote about the temperature dependence of chemical weathering at different scales and how it can be calculated more accurately for the globe as a whole. 
Hi, Susan. Hi. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, this is a really interesting system that we're going to be discussing. And before we go much further, we're going to talk about temperature, climate, and weathering. So I think it would be a service to everybody to kind of clear up these terms. What do we mean when we say weathering in this context? Well, the simplest way to think about weathering is the process by which the rocks that we all see at the surface of the earth change into soil. And that process is, you know, very slow and sometimes pretty fast. And and how fast or slow it goes is in many ways mediated by how much water there is and then what the temperature is. How does chemical weathering actually take carbon out of the atmosphere? So we're thinking about big rocks breaking down into smaller and smaller pieces. Where does carbon come into that? Most of the rocks at the surface of the earth are what we call silicates. So they're made up of elements and calcium, magnesium. These are the elements that we need in our own bodies. It's what we call the minerals in our bodies, vitamins and minerals. And then the other part of the rock is the silicate part, which is silica, SiO2, silicon dioxide. And when that goes into solution, when the rock dissolves, the calcium and magnesium goes into solution, but so does the silica. But the silica is an uncharged species. So the sodium and the calcium and the magnesium are all charged. They are positively charged. So to make the charge balance work, because water has to be completely charge balanced, CO2 is actually dissolved into the water and the CO2 becomes bicarbonate and carbonate, which are the negative ions in the water that make that charge balance. And so in many ways, it sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere just by dissolution of these rocks. And then what happens to that carbon-containing compound like further down the road? Well, it's a long story, but when it's uh, in a pore fluid in soils, it then can percolate downward. It can get in groundwater. The groundwater can flow into the rivers. The rivers can flow to the oceans. And if you think about it over the very long timescales that I think about it, the geology worldview, over millions of years, those bicarbonate and carbonate ions, which originally were CO2 in the atmosphere, are precipitated at the seafloor as limestone. And then that is buried. And so in a real sense, the CO2 in the atmosphere gets buried as rock again, and that is a long-term sink or way of pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. These seem like basic chemical reactions we're pretty much familiar with. So what happens when it gets warmer? Well, when it gets warmer, almost all chemical processes go faster. Not all of them, but many of them go faster and weathering goes faster. And then the solubility, how much of a given mineral can be held in solution also increases. So because those go up, that means weathering goes up. And and, and in a real sense, soils form faster at higher temperatures. So we could see if things were basic and simple, the earth gets warmer, weathering goes faster, carbon gets pulled out of the atmosphere. That's right. There are some complications here that you're trying to take into account in this paper. So what are some of the factors you had to take into consideration to kind of really get a a gauge on how temperature dependent this global reaction is? What I was interested in, and I've been interested in my whole career, is how fast reactions happen and how you can measure them in a laboratory and then extrapolate and predict them in in a field setting. That's a problem I've been working on really my entire life as a scientist. And we can measure how temperature affects rates of dissolution of minerals in the laboratory. We've done that. But then we have to go out and look at soils and can we figure out how fast they form? Well, over the last decades, we've started figuring out how to do that so we can 
now kind of measure how fast soils form and what the temperature effect is there. We can do the same thing for a watershed. We can look at a whole basin, essentially like a river basin, and look at how fast weathering is happening there. When we do that, we, we see a temperature dependence, but the temperature dependence didn't really match. It was contradictory. And so I decided to spend like a year or so of my life, which is what it was, trying to figure out how these different scales match and how you could look at them across those different spatial dimensions all the way up to the globe and uh, understand what that temperature dependence looks like at each of those spatial scales. So do we just need to know what is on the surface, like across every inch of the earth? Is that how you do it? You know, if we did know what rock was present everywhere across the surface, we would still have a problem predicting the temperature dependence, the sort of thermostat, because it also is very important how much rain there is across the surface. And then it's also important, is the surface flat or is it sloping? Because, you know, think about Brazil, if you've ever been to parts of Brazil where you have super, super thick soils, you know, if it's very flat, then the soil just builds up and eventually it's almost armoring the rock. Just because it's raining a lot, it doesn't necessarily weather really fast. You also want it to be always losing the soil so that new rock is being exposed. Mm -hmm. So we need to be looking at how fast mountains grow, how rivers work, you know, how much rain there is. How did you take all of this into account when you're trying to figure this out? Let's face it, in any any science that we do, we're building on what other people have done. And there are people that have looked at every aspect of each of those questions. And so I was building on what was out in the literature and trying to understand how we could put it together. And when I moved up to the global scale, I scaled by what people had seen in the largest rivers, what the, you know, silicate weathering in the largest rivers was recorded in the largest rivers and scaled it by that. And, you know, one of the things that we discovered and we're emphasizing in this paper is how almost half the globe is is so dry that uh, you can almost ignore the weathering in the half the globe. And, you know, I was really doing that based on data from world rivers and then data measured by meteorologists looking at how much rain versus how much evaporation there is in any part of the planet. There's no like, this is what I found. This is the answer. You came up with more of like a, this is how to ask the question appropriately. Is that, I don't know how to say what I'm, I'm trying to get at here. I know it's, it's always a good question because people want to, want to, to say, you know, what did you discover here? And scientists, we're trained to talk about how we put a brick on the wall of Notre Dame and kind of built on what other people did. And I think what we did that, that I found the most interesting is really trying to put these different spatial scales together. I think as scientists, we're usually trained to look at one scale or another. And to put these different spatial scales together is very difficult. And yet I think that's what we did that's interesting is it, it's, you know, it forces you to say, well, if this really is going to work across these spatial scales, how can we make it work? What is the answer that can make this work? and can give us a worldview to build on for the next decades of knowledge. And the next questions that people are going to have and want to probe using this system, like if there's a temperature dependence here, if it's a thermostat, if it kind of has a little bit of a feedback, how is it going to interact with climate change? You know, is this going to help us better understand the future of that? Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things that it really has pushed me to think harder about is this idea that's out there that we could take rock and grind it up and put it out in farmers' fields around the world 
and enhance weathering. That, you know, is something that uh, scientists around the world and I think the Department of Energy is thinking about. And would that work? The answer is yes, it would work because weathering works. Weathering happens. Uh, CO2 is pulled out of the atmosphere as long as you're putting surface area of silicate rock out there. But what it also forces you to think about is all the couplings and feedbacks that are also out there. I mean, everything that I emphasize in the paper as you cross scales, like the grinding up of the, of the grain size, the transport of material around the planet, fracturing, disaggregation, biota, you know, the plants and what the plants are doing, precipitation of clay, all those things that I emphasized that I try to put together and how to cross these scales. We got to think about that if we're going to do enhanced weathering also, because grinding up rock, mining it is really expensive. Transport is really expensive. Everything is so coupled that we know it'll work, but will it work economically and will it do what we want it to do without bad repercussions? I think that question is still open. Definitely. Yeah. And what about the time scale here? I mean, we're talking about a geological process at a global scale. Like how fast does this happen? It's hard for me to kind of wrap my mind around the speed of weathering. I think in many ways, you probably do have a good sense of it because you've probably driven on roads, you know, and looked at rock outcrops for, you know, your whole life. And, you know, you look at it, it probably hasn't changed that much, you know, and, nope. and, and so the process is slow. The process is slow. And that's why when people think about enhanced weathering, uh, this idea of grinding up rock and putting them out in farm fields to pull down CO2, they usually, when they calculate it, they end up having to calculate, ooh, we'd have to mine a whole lot of rock. Ooh, we'd have to really powder it up. Ooh, <laughs> we'd have to transport it. And we'd have to put it out on really large areas. Yeah. I mean, it would take a lot of energy from our typical energy sources to take all that rock out of the ground and make it real, real fine, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's so interesting. It's uh, interesting that when we looked at it and put it together and put together the global picture of the thermostat, we realized that really half the planet is uh, so dry that the weathering from that part of the planet is almost immaterial. And then there's a big part of the planet that's shielded by these soils. So there's really only a small piece of the planet, according to what we think makes the most sense, where this weathering is happening and that's acting as our thermostat. And that's where it's like I said, it has some topography, so it's steep, and then it, it has a lot of rain. And that part of the planet may be holding the key in terms of this sort of long-term temperature stabilization. And that must have changed over time as continents came together and as weather has changed or climate has changed over geological time, again, that time scale. Oh, exactly. And that's what geologists say. You know, there's all sorts of modelers that are have modeled, you know, the movement of continents, and then people are starting to put topography into the models. I mean, it's really a confluence of climate, geology, understanding the Earth's surface. It's all these things putting them together that makes the problem so rich and difficult to really understand. So maybe what you've done now is a snapshot for now, but someone could try to go to the past and see how the thermostat was operating a long time ago. Exactly. And, and, you know, people have done that. And I, you know, I hope they take some of the ideas in our paper now and think about them in terms of, uh, of the geological past, because these different scales, what scientists observe at different spatial scales, it's going to be true in the past. It's putting it together 
in terms of the global picture that is really difficult uh, to understand over geologic time. Well, thank you so much, Susan. This has been really fascinating. Well, thank you. Susan Brantley is the Evan Pugh University professor in the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute and the Department of Geosciences at Penn State University. You can find a link to the article we discussed and a related perspective at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. Or you can take our audience survey at science.org slash podcast. You'll find a pop-up, an add in the sidebar, and a link in the episode description. You can listen to the show on the science website I just mentioned, or you can search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by me, Sarah Crespi. Special thanks to producer Kevin McLean for all his work on the show this week. We also had production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.